Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mainnet 2021 is approaching fast. Join Masari's annual summit September 20th to September 22nd in New York City. The summit gathers crypto professionals for three days of agenda-setting discussions, demonstrations, and networking. Learn more by visiting mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass using offer code DecryptPodcast, all one word. That's mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass by using offer code DecryptPodcast, all one word. Now, to the show. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily and my name is Matthew Deemer. Today on the show, we have author Ben Mesrick talking about his new book, The Anti-Social Network. That's coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Monday, September 13th, 2021. I got an email yesterday about the story that I read about Cardano's hard fork that happened yesterday. I'm going to give you an update on how that is going maybe tomorrow. But I want to read this email to you, and I just want to, you know, give my two cents. Robert wrote, Matthew, you know I'm a huge fan, but your story about Cardano's smart contracts was textbook example of FUD. Yes, you did a bit about the qualifying about the, in air quotes, expert, and added your own skepticism. But that's the perfect delivery method for FUD. <laughs> we are not taking a side, one side or the other. We are not taking, saying, oh, you know, we have to always hype up the industry. We are not saying that we have to FUD the industry. What we are saying is that we have to report on the industry. And the industry, if they want to say that there is skepticism about uh, Cardano's Alonzo's hard fork because there is just problems with, you know, the, the DAP developers building on it, that's something that we have to say. And it's not because we want to fuck Cardano or if we want to hype Cardano. It's because that's the conversation that's being had. And I just want everybody to know that I am not here to fud or hype. I'm here to tell you exactly what's going on. And we are not biased. We are not playing a side here. Or at least I'm not playing a side here. And please, I hope you respect and trust that I am always going to be upfront and honest and pretty neutral for you. But now, let's get into those crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. And I'm recording this at 9.15 Eastern Standard Time. I have something to do at 10.30 today, so I have to get this podcast out a little bit early today. Bitcoin is in at $44,717, down 3% in 24 hours and 12.9% in 7 days. We are having a bit of a slump here, but that's okay. I just guys want you to know on uh, Plan B's stock to flow, we are predicting a $43,000 average in September. And that's before we get a run up in October, November, and December. Um, this is according to stock to flow, not me, but to stock to flow. And well, it's going to be around $43,000 average in September. Ethereum's in the number two spot at $3,222, down 6.3%. Cardano, $2.41, down almost 10% in 24 and 15% in 7. Tells in the number four spot in Binance Coin. Drop below $400 at $397, down 5% in 24 and 20% in 7. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, Solana, which is down 10% in 24. Polkadot, Dogecoin, and USDC. Total market cap, 
$2.03 trillion, a BTC dominance of 41.4% and an F dominance of 18.6. Now it's time for Coin of the Day. Our Coin of the Day today is BitBall Treasure or ticker BTRS. It's number 651 on CoinMarketCap. Its price today is 67.24 or $67.24. I could have just said that. It's down 3% in 24. Market cap, $30.2 million. Fully diluted market cap, 67.2. And we have 45% of the circulating supply in circulation. So where can you buy BitBall Treasure? You can buy it on Indoex, LA Token, and BitStorage. Um, and you also can get it on their own decks. And we'll talk about that in a second. So just looking at this, there is no volume. They, they, they claim that there's $700,000 in volume, but there's no volume. There's no confidence in that volume. CoinMarketCap, as you know, looks at the exchanges and looks at what's going on in the exchanges and gives you a confidence of that there's actual liquidity. There's no liquidity on any of these exchanges. And I don't know how they get the volume traded, but there's no liquidity. You're going to have a hard time uh, buying or selling this token. Now, it's... There's red flags all over this token. It looks as though somebody like started this in like 2018 as a kind of like a test of how to do it. This is like a how to, um, I guess, experiment for these people. But there are three products from this bitball.com or bitball-btb.com. Uh, Bitball, which is a governance token. Ballswap, which is a horrible name and a DEX. And Bitball Treasure, which is a unique store of NFTs with a 10x low supply. I have no clue what that means. Well, they keep going on about like their DEX. I looked at their DEX. I pulled up their DEX. There is no prices. There's no depth. There's no volume. There's no trading. Nothing's happening on this. It seems as though somebody bought this back in 2018 and it's just been sitting here forever. Looks like there's asks and bids on their order books some people are trying to dump but it's just nowhere there's nothing no activity happening on this dex um it looks as though they have their nfts and their nfts for bitball treasure it looks like people are still kind of trying to do something with this and they minted three nfts weirdly enough they said that the bitball ecosystem since 2018 official collection of their nfts was minted 13 days ago and they're trying to get like 10f for their um their nfts which is pixelated bull pixelated bitcoin and a pixelated gem this is not a project that i would actually take seriously um they are there's doesn't seem to be anything happening doesn't seem to be any liquidity doesn't seem to be any any volume no way to have volume no confidence in their liquidity or volume and they are just i guess using this as an experiment i don't even know what they're doing uh, but that is BitBall Treasure, number 651 on CoinMarketCap. Again, we're going to find a gem in these top 1,000s, but this, in my opinion, is not it. Moving into our conversation today, we talked to author Ben Mesrick, who is the author of The Anti-Social Network, the story about Robin Hood, GameStop, and all the players involved. Enjoy. Author Ben Mesrick, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And it's good to see you again. Last time we spoke, we were talking about your book, Bitcoin Billionaires, which was documenting the Winklevi's rise to Bitcoin fame and their empire that they're creating. And you're back with another book. And this one's The Anti-Social Network. And I am very curious about this book. But before you know, we get into my questions about the book, about why you wrote it and your maybe your personal opinions about what's in it, uh, just give me a quick summary. What is it? 
Yeah, the antisocial network is the story of GameStop, the whole drama that happened earlier this year when a bunch of people sitting on their couches on Reddit drove the price of, of GameStop stock from in the 20s all the way to close to 500 in this massive short squeeze. Um, they took on Wall Street. It was a very David versus Goliath story where regular people tried to win for once uh, against, you know, these big multi-billion dollar funds that were shorting a beloved company. And so it's all about that drama. And there's less Winklevi in this story, but I think it's a really cool, compelling story about, you know, what's happening to the stock market and, and what's going on in finance. You know, that, that's where I want to get into your opinion, because, look, I am running for office on Congress over here. I am a very pr big proponent of not only cryptocurrencies, but also uh, retail investors be able to, to um, engage with the financial products that are awarded to uh, rich people uh, for the most part. You know, to be able to buy stocks, to be able to get into the S&P 500, buy indices and, and so on and so forth. And I always I, I looked at this as like the average person finally being included. How do you look at this whole like this whole development with GameStop, AMC, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on. I do think that regular people finally have in their hands the tools of Wall Street traders. You know, Robinhood created this app that's very fun. It certainly does gamify Wall Street to a point where it makes it as easy as a video game. But there's no fees. You don't have to certain amount. And with very little education, you can go on and buy and sell stocks. I mean, the double, the, the edge of that sword, the other side of that sword is that regular people also can lose a lot of money if they don't you know, have their eyes open and see what can happen. I think the drama of this and what's really cool about it and all the different layers of it is it shows the positive side, which is that everyone you know, should be a part of the economy. The more there are people on Main Street taking part in Wall Street, I think the better it is for everyone. But at the same time, there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of shadows and there's a lot of shadowy figures. And if you don't really have your eyes open, um, you know, there are dangers to, to, to everyone having the ability to do what a Wall Street trader does because the Wall Street traders have been doing this a long time and the game isn't necessarily fair. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to look at here, um, but I, I think a regular guy on a couch now does have the power of someone in a suit and tie on Wall Street. Tell me a story, Ben. Tell me a story about that regular guy on the, on the couch that, you know, was just, you know, maybe risking a little bit of his hard-earned money, you know, making an average income. And, you know, that hard-earned money, maybe a $500 or $1,000, turned into something that was substantial that could pay off their house. Do you have any of those stories? Yeah, I do. In the book, uh, you know, there's the A story, which we've heard, you know, the Keith Gill taking on the hedge fund. But the story I also told was one character is this regular college kid who has a few thousand dollars. And he ends up making a quarter million dollars writing GameStop. And he did get out at the right moment and made a ton of money, you know, using his tuition money. Um, uh, there was another character, a woman um, who basically life hasn't been great to. She's a, a single mother of two, a um, couple of divorces. Um, she's an RN, um, has been working hard. Um, she's a Trump supporter because government really never did her any good. And she's got a, a lot of anger inside of her. She just wanted to make enough money to pay for her kids braces. Um, so she got in but didn't really get out. Um, so, you know, there's both sides to this story. A lot of people did make a lot of money. Um, a lot of other people bought in at the heights and ended up losing money when Robin Hood froze trading on the whole situation. Um, and then there's the, the story of the main guy, Keith Gill, who's a guy in his basement in Brockton, Mass, which is a you know, blue collar suburb of Massachusetts, who was live streaming out of his basement because he fell in love with GameStop. And he turned $53,000 um, into $45 million. Um, but he still holds all that stock because he's crazy, <laughs> because he loves GameStop. So, 
you know, there are a lot of stories like that in the book um, of, of fortunes made and, and fortunes lost. Fortunes made and fortunes lost. I think after you talked, spoke to all these people um, and you started to hear their stories, there's times that you probably went into these conversations and you're high-fiving them because they made a quarter million dollars off of a couple thousand, um, $45 million uh, from his couch and, you know, rallying up um, uh, Wall Street bets. And then there's probably times that you walked away from these conversations that you were heartbroken with the, the mom that was just trying to, you know, buy braces, but didn't get out in time and maybe even lost a little money and it's hard earned money as an RN with, with, with kids. Um, did this ch change or influence your opinion on these products that are being rolled out? Like I said earlier, it's like, you know, the retail investor being uh, participants in the economy, I think is a good thing. But again, there is risks for people that are not trained with, you know, this kind of investment or this kind of, uh, you know, leverage of their, their, their capital. Have you come on one side of the fence or the other when it comes to, is this a good thing? Right. You know, it's a great question. And I think I came into it thinking this is a great thing because I love watching college kids make tons of money. But the reality is the risk is not equitable. A guy on Wall Street can get out of a position, lick his wounds and go back to his $30 million mansion. While a regular person who put $1,000 into a stock to watch it go down doesn't get that money back and doesn't go home to their mansion. They just lost the money they were going to use for their rent. So the problem is, is that without any level of regulation, without with this just being the Wild West, you're going to see regular people get hurt a lot more than you're going to see hedge funds get hurt. I mean, the hedge fund at the center of this story lost $5 billion. But guess what? They're still operating today. They're doing fine. They're going to probably rise all the way back up. And a lot of other people, you know, lost the money that they were going to use to pay their rent. Um, so something has to be looked at, uh, whether it's just financial education, whether, you know, along with your Robin Hood app, you really have to go through some steps to know what it is you're getting into. But in the end, you know what, it's your money. And if you want to bet the house, you know, YOLO investing, you only live once, right? The thing that I found that most fascinated me was that people who don't have a lot of money take more risks than people who do have a lot of money. Because the reality is, if you've only got $1,000, making 10% of your money is meaningless to you. Doesn't move the needle, doesn't change your life. Even doubling your money doesn't really mean that much to you. You need to make 10x or 20x or 30x. And so people bought GameStop and said, I'm not selling till it hits a thousand, which was completely insane. And when they bought it 20 and it hit a hundred, they didn't sell, even though they'd made five times their investment because 20 times their investment would really move the needle for them. And so you have to take that into account. It's a different thought process when you have less money than it is when you have a lot of money. <clears throat> You know, that's a very good point, and uh, I, I'm happy you brought that up because actually I was um, on Colin app yesterday, and I was talking about the same thing, is that, you know, with different kind of uh, – when, when, when you do only do, you know, 10% gains, or even if you double your money and it's $1,000, uh, having a $1,000 prof profit is not going to be life-changing to the average person. And you said something at the beginning of that is you said – it's not equitable. How would you make this more equitable for the average consumer, the retail investor, the mom and pop to, you know, invest into the stock market, take maybe less risk yet, um, make it equitable so that they feel that they could invest, but not lose t tuition or braces. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is there has to be much more visibility. You know, the, the shadowy nature of wall street is, is a big warning sign to me. The fact that hedge funds make these moves in the dark, um, you know, you saw this short interest. There was 140% of the shares were short. How is that even possible? I mean, how is it possible that more shares than exist are on the short side? 
And then when Robinhood needs to stop trading on this stock, they basically closed out. Um, it wasn't clear to anybody who uses Robinhood that this could even happen, right? That suddenly they could say, all right, you can't, you can't buy anymore. Um, and so all of that has to be made clear from the outset when you buy this stock. Um, and I think the GameStop story did make that clear to a lot of people. I don't think people are going in with eyes closed anymore. So I think it's important to tell stories like this. Um, I think it's important to talk about it. On the regulation side, I, I think there really needs to be some level of, of education involved or at least signing off on what it is that you're doing. I think Robinhood and a lot of these companies are aiming at younger and younger audiences. And so college kids, 20-somethings with very limited financial backing are basically being sold a, a, a very strong and powerful tool and said, you can just bet all your money right now and there are no sort of fees, which is good, but the fact that there are no barriers means that, that anybody can do it and it's very easy to lose your money. So whether, you know, I don't have the answers to your question, which is actually a very complicated question. Because as a libertarian, as someone who believes that everyone should have the right to do whatever they want with their money, um, you know, I, I don't want to regulate the retail trader. I don't want to say you can't use your money in this. But I also want to say, you know, it's like it's like in Vegas when you're sitting at the blackjack table and you look like you're out of control. Um, there ought to be a, a moment where someone steps in and says, take a step back for a minute. Think about what you're doing and don't just go with it. Um, and Vegas doesn't do that very well, even though they're supposedly supposed to. Um, but on Wall Street, I think the same thing. I think Robin Hood should have in there somewhere be like that moment where some little character comes up and says, are you sure about this? <laughs> because it's your money, but you're probably going to lose it. I, I would like that to be somehow incorporated into the system. I, I like what you said there. And you know what? You know, I'm looking back at your uh, previous books. You know, there was Accidental Billionaires, uh, which is the Facebook uh, story and which uh, got turned into the movie uh, Social Network, if I'm correct. And then there is, you know, Bitcoin Billionaires, like I said, this one, Accidental uh, – uh, I'm sorry, the Anti-Social Network. The theme that I see, and maybe you meant this, maybe I'm just grasping at straws with this, is that risk is involved in every one of them. In, in every story, there is somebody – Almost being as American as apple pie, taking a risk and becoming and, and, and making something bigger than themselves. And in this case, it was somebody taking a risk, organizing the average person and make and creating a movement that was bigger than themselves. With Facebook, Facebook is bigger than you know most governments at this point, and obviously the Winklevi are, are have their little empire. What does that tell you about people with risk? Because you, I just want to just juxtapose this to what you said about you know the risk is different between the average person and the billionaires that are investing. But it's very American to take the risk because we see that there are people that do take risks and achieve that greatness or that financial stability or that, that um, success. What does this tell us about risk in the American spirit? And, and, and is that a theme that I'm just grasping at or is that something that you intended? No, I think it's totally like I'm fascinated by people who are we're willing to sort of risk everything and, and, and try and change the system or take on the system. I mean, that's what I've always written about is, you know, there are there are these big institutionalized systems like Vegas or Facebook or whatever, and people go out there and, and are willing to risk everything to try and beat it or bring down the house. And that does sort of pilot or fire, you know, all of these revolutions. And I'm definitely fascinated by it. And it's very American, the, the, 
the idea that you can go out and really change the world as long as you're willing to risk everything. It's dangerous and it's scary or whatever, but that those are the stories that, that I want to tell and that fascinate me. I do think this is an origin story. I do think what happened here we're going to see again and again and again. I do think that there is a change in Wall Street that's happened that we're just coming to terms with that has to do with social media, which has to do with the ability of regular people to be a part of it that they've never really a part of it before. Um, and at the center of it is risk. And I think without the willingness to take risk, you never move forward. Nothing happens. Um, so, you know, if you are sitting on your couch and you don't risk that money, well, nothing's going to change, right? So I do think it's a very American thing to go out there and actually take risks. Um, the question is, can the system as a whole be made less dangerous for the people who are willing to do that? Um, but the reality is, look, at some point, you know, the stories that get told are the ones about people who risked everything and won. Um, and you don't really tell the stories of the people who risked everything and lost. Um, and so maybe I'm part of the problem by, by dramatizing the winners over and over again. I mean, not everyone's going to end up the Winklevi twins. Um, but, but I do think that that is a very American thing. It's a very, a very American thing to be willing to, to throw your money after something and see what happens. You know, I also uh, wanted to point out that a lot of times when these people throw everything at it and risk everything and win, they've already lost multiple times to get to that point. And but they keep, oh, yeah. you know, doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think that is also very uh, stories that are told after they win, you know, like so, you know, the, the Winklevi, you know, they've been through their um, things. Obviously, they come from a privileged background, but they have lost a couple of times along the way. And but um and especially, you know, the average retail investor probably has their stories as well. Um, but when you get to that point, you also have those stories of, hey, this is the risk I had, this is the risk I have, and now this is my final. Do you think that we should be telling those stories more about the, the losers of, of these uh, games that of risk? Right. One of the fascinating things about Wall Street bets and why I think it was so popular is people would post their losses uh, almost as much as they post their wins. And the community gathered around, I mean, people made fun of each other and whatever, but if you bet $50,000 on a stock and lost everything, that post would garner more likes than if you won. Um, and I think that there is something about telling the story of the losses that is very important and sort of the disasters. And that's why in this book, I chose a few characters, not all of them made tons of money, um, because I wanted to tell all sides of that story. I do think it's important and and. And something about us, we do kind of like to watch car crashes. <laughs> so I do think that there is something compelling about watching the losses uh, as much as there is about watching the wins. Uh, that's why I think th that Wall Street Bets became so popular. Um, and, and when Keith Gill started out, people were just making fun of him. I mean, he was saying, I'm, I'm long on G GameStop. This is gone. I'm putting all my money in GameStop. And people were like, what are you doing? You're nuts. And I think that sincerity and the willingness to lose everything was what galvanized the audience. Ben, where can everybody find your book? Uh, the Antisocial Network is out. It's everywhere. It's in your local bookstores. It's on Amazon. Um, it's also, you can come to my Twitter at Ben Masaryk, and I'm sure I'll be posting about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the book is everywhere right now, and it will be turned into a movie over the next year, which will be really cool to watch. And we're getting some great directors and actors together at this point. And um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be everywhere. Hopefully, you'll, you'll see it in any store you walk into. Excellent. I'm an audiobook guy. I'm assuming there's an audiobook. Who's reading there the audiobook? Is an audiobook? A wonderful, wonderful uh, voice artist did it. It's it's uh, really compelling. I think audiobooks are awesome. I'm I'm a big fan of them as well. So um, yeah, check it out. I hope hope uh, hope it's a it's a good listen. Author Ben Mesrick, thank you very much for coming on the show, talking to us about this. And you know, it's always good to see you. I can't wait for your next book. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. And quickly rounding off with some headlines. 
El Salvador is exempting foreign investors from paying tax on their Bitcoin gains. If a person, they say, has assets in Bitcoin and makes high profits, there will be no tax. This is done obviously to encourage foreign investment, says the legal advisor to the president of El Salvador. There will be no taxes on income or capital gains. As we all know, on the 7th of September, El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender, which means that everybody has to accept Bitcoin if somebody wants to pay with it. Also, they're incorporating it into their government, into their banking, and so on and so forth. Not everybody's happy about this in El Salvador. And obviously, people around the world are not happy about this, as the World Bank refused a request from El Salvador to help the country roll out its plan to make Bitcoin legal tender. And the IMF, as well, had choice words for them. But obviously, time will tell how this plays out for El Salvador, the people of El Salvador, Bitcoin hodlers, and global finance. Selling NFT lobsters for a purpose. Yes, NFT lobsters. 10,000 lobby lobster NFTs were sold at around 0.1 F each, which was about $390 a piece. And well, they gathered around $4 million. And the DAO that governs the funds has unanimously voted to donate those funds to a lobbying group in Washington, Coin Center. I guess they're trying to put funds so people can start making proper regulations, do the research, educate some people in Washington, and figure out how to actually roll this out to support the industry and innovation. The sale, which took place on August 5th, sold out in less than an hour and raised a thousand F. And finally, I want you to email me and give me your opinion. Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co. Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co. Look, we all know about Board Ape Yacht Club. It's basically uh, apes, NFTs, selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, yes, with an S, millions of dollars. Apes, NFTs, wearing different hats and different clothes and different eyes and teeth, and they're smoking things and they're wearing things. And, you know, it was fun. And then, you know, there's pudgy penguins and there's, you know, crypto punks. But what would you say if we made those same bored apes, same crypto punks, same whatever, on Solana? And that's what they're doing. At Money NFT tweeted this. Imagine going to Chinatown to buy a fake Chanel bag and tweeting about it. Well, that's what people are doing. Punks on Solana NFT just looks like crypto punks. And they're trying to sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Bored apes on Solana. They're called Solanapes. Solanapes. And they're selling as well. And people who have bought these NFTs on the Ethereum chain are like, why are you just copying what we have already done? This is not original. This is, but is it? Is this a test or a study in the free market? Is this just blatant ripoffs? And should it be allowed or should it not be allowed? And could you actually regulate it? And uh, what, what would you do if you bought a NFT ape on the Ethereum blockchain? And then saw the same thing on Solana that was just a total knockoff of the, in air quotes, original, unique NFT that you just bought for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Email me, MatthewAaron at Decrypt.co. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Deemer. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment. You can email me, Matthew at Decrypt.co. And don't forget to go to Deemer for Congress, D-I-E-M-E-R for Congress.com, and support the campaign. And until tomorrow, happy hodling, everyone. Mainnet 2021 is approaching fast. Join Masari's annual summit, September 20th to September 22nd in New York City. The summit gathers crypto professionals for three days of agenda-setting discussions, demonstrations, and networking.
Learn more by visiting mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass using offer code DecryptPodcast. All one word. That's mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass by using offer code DecryptPodcast. All one word.